often, but okay, often. I would get pulled over by someone for speeding. And there is no way you're getting out of a ticket when you look like that. I mean, after they laugh, they're giving you a ticket just for that driver's license photo. I mean, there's no way you get out of it. So there are little regrets like that. But the thing is that there are bigger ones too, right? Like there's frivolous ones that we have, but then there are larger ones. So I want you to sit back for a second and just ponder that a little bit in your own life as we watch this video where they took a chalkboard in New York City and they just they put the chalkboard up and they just put regrets at the top and they let people come along and process that throughout the day. Let's watch. all the time I wasted, not saying yes to things. It's something I've always wanted to do since I was little. Time slipping away, I mean, that's probably the worst feeling in the world, right? loads of friends from different walks of life and it's really hard to keep in touch with everyone. Up until recently, I was homeless. If I hadn't hurt the people that I had, maybe I wouldn't have been. I wanted to do so many things, but I can never seem to find the time. I did all the things that were like plan B. I just never did it. Feels like where I want to be. Feels like where I want to go. That it's not my regret anymore. It's hopeful. It means there's possibility. these different places and whether your regret is something you didn't do or something you did. The message of the gospel, the message of the story of the prodigal son, the reason that Jesus told the story in the first place is this. 
you can have a new day. You can have a fresh start. That any of those regrets, none of them are the end. They are simply the beginning of what God wants to do in your life. And when you awaken to the regret, what you can awaken to is that there is hope. That there is no mistake that you've ever made that is big enough that God can't redeem. That God can't change. This is the story of the gospel. That we don't have to have our lives defined by our mistakes and by our regrets. We can have our lives defined by how God feels about us, but what God invites us to. And so that's, that's the prayer for this week. This is, we've been talking about this wager during the Lent season, the preseason to Easter. This wager of, will you take this wager of, God, if you're real, make yourself real to me. Okay, so God, if you're real, make yourself real to me. And this week in particular, by awakening me to this reality that I can have a start over. I can have a, I can have a do-over. God, you could give me a new day. And that's what God wants us to awaken to. So the message of the gospel. And so today, if you want to pull out this little thing in your program guide that says scoop on it and open it up, inside there's a little outline that will help you follow along today on the conversation that we're going to have about regret and about awakening to regret. And so the first thing I want to talk to you about this morning is, is how awakening to regret first means coming to our senses. It means coming to our senses. So the prodigal son story is a story about these two sons and a dad, and one of them says, Dad, I, I just want to be done. Like, just give me what's owed to me. Give me my inheritance. I want to be done with this family. I am out of here. I am on my way. And so he takes off, and he goes out to pursue the big, wide world, and he's going to conquer it. He doesn't want to have any regrets. And he does, he, So he is off to do his thing, and he cuts off from his family, and he goes out into the big world with all of his inheritance. And the elder son, who says, no, no, no. I will be faithful. Don't worry, Dad. I'll be faithful. I'm going to do my job. I'm going to do all the right things. I'm going to be here the whole time. And how both of them end up in regret. At the end of the story, one son who goes off into the world finds himself in a famine, all his money burnt through, all of his friends spent, all alone in a foreign land, on his own, thinking even the worst, the lowest role in my family's house, the, the hired men with the most least rule, they, even they have more than I do. And the elder son, who ends up at this place of regret where when his, young, when his younger brother returns, who he never even bothered to look for, he resented him so much, that when his younger, son retur- his younger brother returns and his father throws a party, the elder brother goes, I resent I resent all of this. I resent that I've been here the whole time doing the right things. I regret having made all of those choices because you never threw a party for me. What about me? What about me? And so in this story, the prodigal son, the younger son, who goes off to do his own thing, he thought he knew what he was doing. right? He thought he knew he was making all the right choices. I'm going to go out into the world and do what I want. I'm going to escape all the responsibilities so I can find my way and find myself. And he ends up, in this famine, working with pigs in a pig pen, which for a Jewish boy and for his dad looking at this would be kind of akin to Donald Trump's kids working for the Hillary campaign, right? Like it, it would be the worst of all situations, right? Twitter about that a little bit. Like he, his father is embarrassed. He's embarrassed. He knows this is cut off. He knows this is like, man, this is the worst of all places. And there he is. And it says in Luke 15, verse 17, 
that when he, when the, the, the son, the prodigal son who finds himself there, when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself at home, even the hired men have enough food to spare. And here I am, dying of hunger. Now, can you imagine that, that moment when he has that sinking feeling when he realizes even the hired men in my dad's house have enough, more than enough food to spare, and here I am, I'm dying of hunger. Can you imagine that moment of regret, that moment that sinking feeling? I bet you can, because you're probably like me, you've felt it before. In that moment where something that you said was repeated that you hoped would not be repeated. When you realize that that thing you did can't be undone and it wrecked something in your life. When you realize that that harsh word that you just said to someone that you thought, you know, your husband, your, your wife, your, your kids, someone else, your parents, said something harsh to them that you just can't unsay and you regret it. And it's that sinking feeling, that, that debt that you've taken on, that financial debt maybe in your life that it's just debilitating, and it just has this rocking this thing in your stomach that you just, oh, I have messed up in such a big way. And this thing that, this thing that can't be fixed, like there's no fixing that can undo it, that can fix it, and I feel stuck. That thing that you regret, that thing that you, know, you, you got to that place that if you knew that you would be regretting what you're regretting, you wouldn't have done what you're doing. You know that place where you're just like, I wish I could go back. If I knew how I'd feel in this moment, if I knew what this meant. The question I always ask myself is like, why do I, how do we get here? How do we get here in the first place? What, what happens? Why start in this thing? Because often I think it's about, it's about self-deception. I mean, that's how we get to those places of regret. We, we deceive ourselves into thinking that the right way the wrong way, rather, is the right way. Those moments of rationalization, you know what they are. Those moments where you're talking yourself into it. You know it's not the right way, but you talk yourself into it. I mean, there's the one-liners that you guys all probably recognize. I certainly recognize them as a pastor. I've heard them a thousand times when someone's come into my office and they're suffering from deep regret. And you know what they say in those moments when they're trying to figure out, should I or shouldn't I? They say things like, but I deserve to be happy. I deserve to be happy, right? If you're saying I deserve to be happy, I just I want you to know from the bottom of my heart, you are at a moment of deception that is about to, the train is about to come off the tracks and you don't even know it. And if you're in that place where you say, you know, that, that other line that I hear quite often is, well, just this once. I mean, just this once. I just want to try it. You're about to deceive yourself. You're about to send the, the, the tracks, the train right off the tracks because you've rationalized your way into it. Or even in that moment of like the elder brother who just decided to kind of be complacent and settle in and say, I'm just going to do it the right way. I'm not going to try any harder. I'm, this, I'm just going to stay here and do this thing. And then later regretted settling for the least, for just getting by, for, for just doing everything right, but never really thinking about what is really right. And this word, this, this phrase, coming to your senses in Luke 15, quite literally in the Greek, what it means is coming to an understanding of self. That's kind of the quite literal translation is coming to an understanding of self. In other words, you're coming to a reality check. 
You're coming to this place where you understand that this is a turning point. And that's what regret is about. God, it's engineered into us to regret, to have this turning point to go, I'm coming to an understanding of my, what my real life is about, what reality is about. And in that moment, often we, don't you feel stuck sometimes? Like in that moment of regret, doesn't it feel like you've lacked traction? Like you feel like, man, I don't, can't get anywhere. I mean, some of you probably can identify with that wallowing, you know, in that regret moment of like, man, here I am, you know, or, or playing the part of the victim. God, man, I'm just, I'm a victim here and I can't do anything about it. Or, or blaming, like that's a good one, right? How many of you are blamers? Like, if so-and-so wouldn't have, I wouldn't be here. If they should have, and then I could. Or maybe you're that person who takes himself out behind the woodshed and gives himself a good beating, you know, condemns himself, kicks himself over and over and over. Here I am again. Oh, man, I'm always doing it. And you just continue to beat yourself. But see, in regret, in that moment of regret, it's not a place to be stuck. It's a place where we recognize that we have a choice. You know, in high school, I read this book, um, probably the only book I ever read willingly in my entire high school career, that wasn't Cliff Notes, okay? And so Cliff Notes, which if you're too young for Cliff Notes, that would be the Wikipedia version of a book only we had, that we had in high school. And so I read this book, and this one line stuck out of me that I will never forget and that I have repeated over and over throughout my life, and that's this one line of this. You always have a choice, and it always makes a difference. No matter where you find yourself in life, no matter what regret that you are under, you always have a choice, and it always makes a difference. You have choices that led you to where you are, but you have choices that can lead you away. And the question is, what are those choices? And so here's what I want you to recognize. In that moment of regret, it's not just about fixing your situation. Your real choice here is, can you come to your senses? Can you get honest? Most of us don't like that idea of getting honest about our situation and about how we got there because it takes a lot of courage. And the truth is, most of us lack the courage to be honest. We do. We lack the courage to do it on our own. We think, man, if I get, if I get honest and I admit where I am and it's true. When I, um, when I used to go hiking um, back before phones had GPSs, I had this great Garmin hiking outdoor GPS, right? And you could download a trail map to it, and you could hike with it. And um, some of my friends love to tell the story of one time we couldn't find the trailhead to the Appalachian Trail where we were going to hike. And I said, Don't, guys, I got this great GPS, so we will find the trail. Let's just park. We'll just go out into the woods. We'll find the trail. We know where we're going. We can, you know, I can tell where we're going. We got the right direction. We'll get there. And so, now I don't remember it exactly this way, but as they tell it, we, must, we hiked through mountain laurel and jaggers and up straight up cliffs. And finally, there was a coup with my GPS. And they, they grabbed the GPS and they stole it from me. And they started walking like, okay, the trail's got to be, we are walking up like perpendicular to the trail till we find the trail. We're no longer just going in the right direction. And the lesson I learned from that that I think is appropriate for regret is it is as important to know where you are as it is where you're going. Because if you don't know where you are, you'll have trouble getting to where you're going. And you'll, you'll have a much harder time. But if you can be honest about where you are, then you can start to really find your way to where you're going. And you can find it the way God wants it for you. 
But I think the temptation, see if you relate to this too, is to spin your life, right? It's to put a spin on your life. Like, oh no, it's, no, my life's pretty good. And there's this book called Replenish, and in it they talk about, the author talks about front stage and backstage life. And the front stage life is where we get our applause and where we please people and what we show off to people. And we spend a lot of energy spinning that front stage life, putting a lot of energy into making things look good and making things neat and orderly. But that there's also a backstage life. And just like our stage, the front stage is really the smaller part. The backstage is where life really happens. And so on the backstage of your life, there's all these things that are places that people aren't allowed to see. But you don't let them. You, you might not even want to see them yourself. You know what I'm talking about? Those things in your life that you're like, yeah, I don't even want to say that aloud, but that's true about me because if I admitted that, I just, I just want to hide from it. I have such fear of those places that are dark and messy, the kind of person I really am, the way I really feel about people, I do not want to admit that. And so I'll spend all my energy polishing the front side so no one sees the back side. And for a while, that's what the prodigal son did. Man, he polished it up. He took all that money. He lived it up. He had friends. He had had everything he wanted. But in the inside, he was dying. And when everything ran out, he discovered that the backstage life, the, the real parts of life, we're there and not in the front. You can't, you can't fill the void in your life by polishing the front. And you probably all know that you could be wildly successful on the outside and still be empty on the inside. But that happens frequently. Still be broken, still be harried, still have that, that feeling on the inside. And I know that we're all guilty of it, that that moment that you update your Facebook status, and then later you go check and see how many times it's liked. Just want to know, like, am I really, like, people really like it, what I'm putting out there, or that, that difficult conversation that you avoid because you don't, you don't want to be unpopular. You don't want people not to like you. Or that thing that you said yes to that you wish you said no to, but you had to say yes to because, well, I don't want to let that person down i.e., I want to impress them with the kind of person I am that I can keep up with it all. Or that, that thing that you defend and that thing that you go after and say, I can't be wrong because if I'm wrong, it says too much about my worth and my value. But coming to your senses is realizing all those things, that the front stage of life, all those things that you're doing, it's not really doing anything for your inside. It's not really filling you. It's not really doing anything to to change what's going on in life. And, and it's one thing to spin your life for others, to try to make yourself feel better. It's one thing to put that spin on for others. And it's quite another to put that spin on for God, who knows the depths of your heart, who knows exactly what's happening. And to be honest with Him, it's different. Because when you put the spin on for God and try to act like it's all good, and you're not really vulnerable with God, it's a bit like, you know, the cat, that cat you have that drags that bloodied mouse onto your porch to impress you, and you're not really all that impressed? You're like, oh, it's a bit like that. We're dragging all that stuff back for God, and God's going, I'm not impressed. That's not what I ever wanted. What I wanted was for you to be real with me. What I wanted was your vulnerability. What I wanted was for you to, to have, like, nothing left to offer me but yourself. 
with open arms, kind of just vulnerable, nothing left at the end of yourself. That's what I've always wanted. I think one of the greatest lessons I've learned in life is that God, God loves me deeply. Not just not in all my doing and all my performing and all of me having it together. God loves me deeply in my brokenness. And he doesn't love me in spite of my brokenness. He loves me because of my brokenness. The relationship we have, the intimacy that we have, is all because I've been willing to be surrendered and broken and come to the end of myself and say, God, will you transform me? I need you. Because it's in that moment that I discover that there is a universal being that controls everything, and he fiercely loves me. And he proved it through his son, Jesus, who did everything to make it possible for me to find my way home. So what does it look like to let God in? To be honest, to, be, to honestly examine ourselves? It means, it means allow yourself to come into the presence of God and say, God, will you examine me? It means opening yourself up to new possibilities to say, God, you could do something here that I can't. It means being willing to feel what's really going on down deep in the backstage area of your life. Because if what you don't feel, God can't heal. Because you've got to bring it out to him into his presence and say, yeah, I'll be there. It means bringing yourself into places of environments where you can be reminded of God's healing grace. And when you do, what it ends up happening is you get new friends. And those friends' names are joy and peace and love and goodness, and faithfulness, and you're not mustering those up anymore, and you're not trying to pursue them anymore. They're just there because you realize that your worth is not based on everything you've done or not done. It's not based on your regrets. It's based on coming to the end of yourself and saying, God, I need you. I desperately need you. There's a book, um, one of my favorite leadership books. It's called Leading with a Limp by Dan Alexander, and he puts it like this in here, so I just want to read this paragraph to you. It's, it's, just a, it's a beautiful way of expressing this place between when we don't have the courage to say, here's who I am, and getting the courage to step out and the reason that we need to. So here it is. He says, my best is not good enough, ever. The best I have to offer, if it were good enough, we would have peace. We'd have world peace. I wouldn't have to wait in line for tables at my favorite restaurant. Something more than my best is needed. And that something is the truth about who I am. He says, I must confess that I'm prone to wonder. That I am not truly loyal. That I'm more likely to backbite than offer grace. That I'm self-serving and rather committed to my own good rather than yours. What benefit could ever come from naming what is true about myself like this? The more honestly I name what is true about myself, the less I need to hide and posture and protect. And the freer I am to accept help from any source. And the greater my gratitude will be for the sacrament of kindness I receive from God and from others and the more I will desire to give grace rather than make others pay for their real or perceived failures. This is the reward that we get from being honest. So whatever, whatever place you are, here's this one last thing I want to tell you. This doesn't happen by accident. You're not going to accidentally wake up one day 
and be honest. Even in your worst regrets, you're not going to get there unless you open yourself up to be intentional with an intentional willingness, a desire so badly to meet God in this ground and to say, I am convinced that even in brokenness, He will love me. That you'll intentionally open yourself up to it, that you'll place yourself in environments and you'll be, say, I want to place myself in environments and around people who love Jesus and can help me in my situation, who can speak into my life, who can say, let's admit what's true about all of ourselves. To contemplate what's honestly in your heart. And that takes a lot of fortitude and it takes a lot of spiritual practice throughout every moment of your life. It means fighting busyness in your life because if you're just busy all the time and if you have the TV on all the time and you have all these things going on in your life, guess what you'll never get to? Honesty. It'll be too easy to stand in the front stage area of your life and never pay attention to what's really going on in your soul. And God wants to meet you there and he wants to fill you with joy. He wants you to stop running after all the other stuff. God wants you to awaken that and there's something beautiful that happens in the moment of regret. You recognize in the moment of regret when you put yourself before God, that he's not out to condemn you. He's out, he's out to help you. He's out to transform you. He's out to give you a new way. And that's called unmerited favor. The Bible calls it grace. God's grace. It's unmerited favor towards you. And regret is simply something that awakens you to this reality. You can come home. No matter where you are, you can come home. And so let's talk about the second choice that we have in that moment making the choice to turn home. When we stop spending all of our energy on all these other things, we can have the choice to come home. Now there's this um, the story of the prodigal son was actually painted. And uh, it was painted by Rembrandt. And this is, this is the imagery. I'm going to make you all nervous and see if this, this is not going to stay up here. So I'll make you really nervous. So I'll, look, this is my assistant. It's lovely. Thank you. So this painting was by Rembrandt, and um, it's, it's the painting of the return when the prodigal son has that moment of regret, and he finally comes back, and he leans into the arms of his father. Now, can you picture the conversation he's having on the way home? I can, because I've had that conversation many times in my own life, coming home to the father. My own relationship with my own dad was not real great growing up. And um, I often found myself having the same conversation with God the Father, thinking he wouldn't really love me. And I better do better in my life that I probably embarrassed him, that there are things in my life that I'd rather he not know. That what about, you know, if I come home or if I admit, you know, those moments in your life and regret that you're like, if I come home, if I come back to God in this moment, what about my reputation? What about the outcomes of this? What if I admit this and it's just, he doesn't want me anyway. He's just like, just go away. And in this moment where the prodigal son returns and he has all these promises, like he's, you imagine when he kneels down and he says, he says what he says in Luke chapter 15, 18 through 19, I'll go home, I'll say to the father, I have sinned against both heaven and you and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me as a hired hand. And he begins to make promises. Listen, I'll never do it again. Listen, I'll, I'll do better. I, I'll just live in the hired man's house. I don't even belong in your house. I don't want to be a part of your house. If I could just, if you just let me be a hired hand again, I'll, I'll do my best to try to make you proud. I'll, just, I'll try, I'll try, I'll try. And his father, just ignoring all of that, so glad that he's returned home. So happy that he's finally returned home. 
with the elder son who looks on, displeased the whole time in his own regret. Because he's never enjoyed the real embrace of his father. He's done everything right. He's done everything to the letter of the law. He's never taken time to get the embrace of his father. Remember, thank you, Sean. I remember a few years ago, um, in this moment in my own life where I went for counseling because I, I just felt like there were so many things in my life that I regretted. And I went through this exercise from my own family of origin where they, they had, us, had me set up some other folks who were in the group with me. It's called sculpting. And so they just, you just put them in the position that as a child you felt like your family was in. And as I set them each up, and I, then I was supposed to put myself where I would be. And you didn't tell them anything about the situation. And so you just, then you placed yourself kind of in this live sculpture. So I put them in the room the way I saw them, and then I began to place myself, only I found myself not in the room. I found myself outside the room. Not even just outside the room, but hiding behind a tree outside the room, realizing in that moment that this is what I had been doing with God all my life. For, for the first 20 years of following God, I'd been hiding from Him. So I was afraid of this moment. And I love Jesus, but I always pictured myself coming to even God the Father hiding behind Jesus. I didn't know if He'd really love me. Not with all the stuff that I'd done, not with what's really in my heart. And through that season, through that moment, God for the first time reassured me of this. You can always come home. And that night, the guy who played my father, who then I asked, we had a conversation, and he embraced me. And in that moment, for the first time in my life, that was what I experienced. I felt like the father in heaven, who I was sure wouldn't love me, for the first time in my life, embraced me. And I could come home. And so I tell you all of that to reassure you that he wants to embrace you too no matter where you are. And there might even be someone in your life who you think doubts all of that. He wants to embrace them too. So here's what I'd like you to do in this last few moments today. We want to tell you a story, kind of a, a modern story of the prodigal. And in that story, I would like you just to sit back for a second in, this, in the next few moments and take it in as if it's the first time. Like you are the first hearers. Like you are the hearers that Jesus is telling the prodigal story to for the first time who don't know that there's a Father in heaven who wants more to give them mercy and compassion and help them find their way home than he does to reject them and condemn them. And so sit back and hear this story and be amazed and wonder at it. Her name was Krista, and she grew up on a small cherry farm in Traverse City, Michigan. She was a wild child who dismissed her parents as old-fashioned because of how they had responded to her piercings, her tattoos, the music she listened to, and the friends she associated with. One night, Krista and her parents had a huge fight. They grounded her, and she was seething inside. At the end of the fight, she angrily slammed her door and yelled, I hate you. Well, that night, 
she acted upon a plan that she had been rehearsing for many months in her mind. She ran away to the big, sophisticated city of Detroit. Well, because newspapers in Traverse City reported more detail, the gangs, the drugs, and the violence in downtown Detroit, she concluded that that was probably the last place that her parents would look for her. California, maybe. Florida, possibly. But not Detroit. On her second day there, she met a man who drove the biggest car she'd ever seen. He offered her a ride. He bought her lunch. He arranged for her to have a place to stay. And he gave her some pills. Pills that made her feel better than she'd ever felt before in her life. Well, she was right all along, she decided. Her parents were keeping her from all the fun in life. Well, that good life continued for a month, two months, and a year. And the man with the big car, she called him boss. He taught her a few things that would make her valuable on the street. Since she was young, she brought top dollar for her services. She lived in a penthouse and ordered room service whenever she wanted. Occasionally, she thought about the folks back home, her parents and such, but their lives now seem so distant, so boring, so provincial, that she could hardly believe she even grew up there. Well, after that first year, the first sallow signs of illness began to appear, and it amazed her how fast the boss turned mean. These days we can't mess around, we got to move on, he growled. And before she knew it, she was out on the street without a penny to her name. What little money she could make went to support her habit. And when the winter winds blew, she found herself sleeping on the metal grates outside the big department stores in Detroit. Well, sleeping is the wrong word. A teenage girl at night in dangerous Detroit can never relax her guard. Dark bands began to circle under her eyes, and her cough began to worsen. everything about her life looked different. She no longer felt like a woman of the world. She felt like a little girl, lost in a cold, frightening city. Her pockets were empty. She was hungry. 
She needed a fix. She pulled her legs underneath her and shivered under the newspapers that she had piled on top of her to use as a coat and said to herself, God, why did I leave? And the pain stabbed at her heart. My dog at home eats better than I do now. She was sobbing, and she knew in a flash that more than anything else in the world, she wanted to go home. Three straight phone calls. Three straight connections with an answering machine. She hung up without leaving a phone message the first two times, but the third time, she left a message. And it said, Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way, and it'll get there about midnight tomorrow. And if you're there, great. But if you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay on that bus until it reaches Canada. You see, it takes about seven hours for a bus to make all the stops between Detroit and Traverse City. And during that time, she realized there were some serious flaws in her plan. What if her parents were out of town and missed the phone message entirely? Shouldn't she have waited another day or so until she could talk to them personally via phone? And even if they were home, well, they probably wrote her off as dead long ago. She should have given them a little bit more time to overcome the shock of that phone call. Her thoughts bounced back and forth between those worries and and the speech that she was rehearsing for her father. Dad, I'm, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine. Dad, can you ever forgive me? She said the words over and over and over, her throat tightening even as she rehearsed them. See, she hadn't apologized to anyone in many years. When the bus finally rolled into the station, the driver announced, Traverse City, 15 minutes. 15 minutes, folks, that's all we have. 15 minutes. 15 minutes which would decide her life. She checked herself in the compact mirror she carried, smoothed her hair, licked the lipstick off of her teeth, and she looked at the tobacco stains that were now on her fingers and wondered if her parents would notice, if her parents were even there. into the bus terminal, not knowing what to expect, and not one of a thousand scenes that she had played out in her mind prepared her for what she saw. There, 
in the sterile concrete walls and plastic chairs of the bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stood a group of 40 brothers and sisters, great aunts and uncles, cousins and a grandmother, and a great-grandmother to boot. They were all wearing goofy party hats and blowing noisemakers, and taped across the entire wall of the bus terminal was a huge banner that said, Welcome Home. Her dad broke through the crowd of well-wishers, and he ran up to her. And she stared out through the tears that were welling in her eyes, and she began the memorized speech that she had rehearsed on the bus. And she said, Dad, I'm sorry. I know. He interrupted her. He wrapped his arms around her. Hush, child. We've got no time for that. No time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. A banquet's waiting for you at home. are. Maybe you're in the middle of one that you're like, man, could he really embrace me? Maybe you've got a lot of them that held you back. Time to be honest. Is it time to be convinced that the God of the universe fiercely loves you, just wants your embrace? Maybe there's somebody else in your life. Maybe you've resolved some of those regrets already. You've been embraced by the Father, but it is time for you. And this is really the lesson of the prodigal son. Not that we're called to be the prodigal, not that we're called to be the elder brother, but that we're called eventually to be like the father who embraces someone else on their way home. He says, I see that you have regrets. I want to help you know. I want to help you know the love of the father. Can I help you? Come on. So here's my challenge to you this week. Can you pull out your response card for a minute? Everybody pull that out for a second. This is kind of your moment. This is your you-have-a-choice moment. You need to come home. It's today your day to say, God, I need to come home. Will you just write that let me pray for you, help you get your journey home, to know that you're gonna, God wants to help you start over. This You'll just take that wager, God, if you're real, let me find my way home. Let me start over. If there's someone else in your life who you know they're in that process, you think about you God wish they would find their way home. You just write that in your response card. Help, fill in their first name, come home. And that'll be your commitment this week 
either take the wager for yourself or to take it for someone else. And if you'll do that, I believe that God will meet you in some amazing ways. Good things will happen that you never anticipated before. Let me close us in prayer and pray over you guys. You join me. God, today I know that you're real. And yet we still take the wager. If you're real, make yourself real to me. God, if you're real, you really love us. And we need you to love us. Help us find our way back to you. Awaken us to the possibility that with you, we can start over again. That there are people in our lives who need to start over again. God, help me to take a new start. To realize that, Jesus, you came. And turning towards you, Father, is really turning towards the cross. And saying, Jesus, thank you. Forgive me. And help me find my way home. In Jesus' name.